Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for following Jesus. If we haven't met yet, my name is Tony and I'm your host. With over a decade in the local church, I just want to help you connect with Jesus in practical, tangible ways. And every week I do that through conversations and monologue episodes. And this week, it's a big deal because um, every once in a while, I run across a guest who I just connect with. And that was the case this week. Dr. Jessica Peck is a nurse practitioner. She's a parenting expert specifically around um, teens. And her latest resource, Behind Closed Doors, led us to this great conversation. And it was so great that I decided to ask her to come back for the second episode of this week and invite her teenage daughter. So today is one of two episodes with Dr. Peck, and uh, I think you're absolutely going to love this conversation. If you do love it, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify, and the highest compliment you can give us, share this episode with a friend, maybe somebody that you know who uh, is raising kids, teenagers, all the things. We're appreciative. And uh, now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Jessica Peck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to have Dr. Jessica Peck with us today and her brand new resource, Behind Closed Doors, about how to connect with our teenagers. And if this isn't a timely conversation, I don't know what it is. Jessica, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to dive right in and to visit with your listeners. Thanks. I really do appreciate it. So one of the things that I like to start with is this idea about calling, because I think it's so important. You're you're a a well-established nurse practitioner. You've done this for lots of years. How would you describe the calling that God has placed on your life? That's a great question. So, you know, I have been fortunate to always follow Jesus. I became a Christian at a very young age and was raised in a Christian home. And I became a nurse and then a nursing faculty. And I always kind of viewed myself as a uh, nurse who was a Christian. And, you know, just Mm. it wasn't so much that they were separate, but in some ways they were. And I really had a turning point when I, I got my doctoral degree, I was the first woman in my family to go to college and I started, you know, I published a paper in my policy class. And so started getting invitations to all of these different forums. Long story short, I found myself in Congress and it was the first time I had ever traveled away from my family, from my husband, from my kids. And I was really scared and kind of thinking, what am I doing here? You know, I have this comfortable little life. Like, do I really need to be doing this? And so I went and met uh, my assignment was to meet with Ted Cruz right after he had first been elected. And I was so nervous because he had been all over the news for reading green eggs and ham and everything. And, uh, when I went in there, his I saw that his pants at the knees were super wrinkled and like they had been over a hanger and not uh, ironed. And so I thought, this is just a guy who puts his pants on one leg at a time. And so I talked with him and did my assignment and I kind of walked out and I thought, I did it. And I'll tell you, God just stopped me right there on the Capitol steps and just said, I am with you. And is that enough? And mm-hmm. are you going to give everything to me? And 
I thought, okay, that's it. I And so from that point on, it wasn't that I was a nurse who was a Christian. I felt like I was a Christian who had a platform of nursing. And it really flipped my mindset And because faith informs everything that I do. So being able to step out in that has been really exciting. And God's dreams for me are much bigger than any of the ones that I had for myself. My big dream was to have an associate degree in nursing. And God said, no, I've got other plans. And thankfully, I said yes. I love that. Um, I, I think that faithful obedience is so important. Um, I, I'm curious, as you um, step out in writing this book, it's, uh, I mentioned to you pre-recording, it's what I call Sneaky Jesus. It's, it's, it's a Christian book with a lot of very practical and research-based applications how does it feel to have this part of your life now very publicly put out there? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it really has been made possible because I teach at Baylor, which is a faith-based university, and we call ourselves unapologetically Christian. And that is mm. our worldview and what we do. And so my faith has always informed my nursing practice, but you're right. This is the first time I've been really public about it. And the truth is I take care of patients uh, from all walks of life, from all different kinds of faith. And there's a lot of things that we share, a lot of advice that's applicable to anyone. But my own personal faith, you know, that's where I can speak from authentically and speak to those parents who, uh, you know, have the same faith tradition that I do, who are also Christian and who are struggling with these issues. I see that. And then it's also an invitation for other people to look in and say, hey, this is how I live out my Christian faith. And it's opened a lot of really good conversation. Now, I in the book, you talk a lot about having um, conversation with your teens, and we're going to talk about all of that. But I, I love to steal really good um, practices, if anybody has any, on family devotionals. Is there anything that you do with your, you've got four teenagers. Is there anything that you do with them to stay rooted in your faith as a family? I mean, outside from the practical stuff that we're going to get to with the book, which is a, a little bit more situational, any kind of like corporate, like, Hey, this is what we do as a family to make sure we're on track. You know, I think when I first became a mom, I had this idea that, you know, you're supposed to have devotionals every day. And so I would get out the little book and try to, you know, make everything perfect. And it was not perfect. Like, you know, I've got kids crawling <laughs> on me, like they're bored, they're crying, they're wandering off, somebody has to go to the bathroom, you know. And so I learned early on that this notion of that kind of perfect little thing was just not real. It was not where we are. So I've really adopted the principles in Deuteronomy about, you know, talk about these things as you walk along the road and, and, you know, as you sit down and as you lie down and, you know, as you get up, you go to bed. So really there's times in our family life where we have been able to kind of sit down like a Christmas time. We'll do that. We'll sit down and gather around, mm -hmm. by, you know, the fireplace at night and I'll read something or my husband will read something and we may go through a book together, but there's a lot more times that we just have practical faith, you know, where we will listen to a podcast together in the car, where we'll turn on a sermon and listen. One of the best spiritual disciplines that we have as a family is that we always go to church, even if we're traveling. So my, uh, mm -hmm. I'll find my teenagers when we're going someplace to find a church. So they got to look on the website, what's their theology, um, you know, what are their beliefs, how do we go and visit 
we've had some really great experiences. Like we've been to church in uh, Hawaii where they gave us lays and little smoothies. I mean, my kids wanted to join right there. I think they would have moved their members. <laughs> but, um, but we've been to a little mountain church in Colorado. We've been to an, uh, one of the oldest churches in America in Williamsburg. And it's awesome to find God's people everywhere. So that would be the encouragement I would give to parents is that there's no perfect or right way to do it. It doesn't have to be really structured. Some seasons just aren't made for that. Um, but you can take you know, the opportunity just as you're riding in the car together or as you're just you know having a spontaneous gathering, all of those things, that's what's really been authentic and worked well for us. One of the things that I um, I noticed is the, is that this book must have taken a really long time to put together because it, it's research based, it's scriptural based, it's it's kind of this really good um, combination of all the above. So, so kind of two questions I wanted to ask around that is one, uh, what was the process like of putting it together, and two, how did you know that God was calling you to write a book like this? The, oh, these are great questions that nobody's asked me yet. So your your listeners are going to get all new information here, which is wonderful. <laughs> Thank so you. it did. It, in some ways, it took a long time. And in some ways, it didn't take any time at all. So in the fall of 2019, I, I, had, I had gone to Baylor. And that really changed my life. And the president, Linda Livingstone, said the world needs a Baylor. And Baylor changed my world because I, you know, they... Not only do they say, okay, it's okay for you to be public about your faith. They say, how can we help you? How can we support you? And so that was, you know, kind of just a big life change that happened. Um, I really was not intending to write a book at all. Um, My primary area of expertise right now in nursing is human trafficking. And I look at all the risk factors that bring children to that point. And that's really a lot of things that I discuss in the book. But during the quarantine, I I had been talking to a lot more church audiences about human trafficking. So I joined a conference to to talk about like speaking. And uh, when I did, they said, oh, you should write a book. And I said, about what? And they said, we don't know. Like, just, we just think you should write a book. <laughs> and I thought, I've never thought about that. But during the quarantine, I went in my backyard and I just brought my journal and a Bible and I just prayed about it. And within an hour, I had the whole outline done. It just, you know, poured right out of me. And it was just something I think that God had been putting in my heart for years and just preparing me for that moment. Um, then after that, of course, you know, a lot of it's based on research I had already done or knowledge I had already done, but I met with focus groups of parents. I met with focus groups of teens who had walked through these issues and what would they have wanted from their parents? I met with focus groups of pastors mm-hmm. and said, I want to be theologically sound without being theological. Cause that's, you know, not my platform where I am. And, uh, yeah, long story short, it's been two and a half years, two and a half years from start to finish. So it has definitely been a labor of love. What have you learned about God in the process? I'm sorry. Say it again. It, it cut out. What have you learned about God in the process? I have learned that God is faithful. God is so faithful. Mm. And I think that, you know, part of this story Part of what is different about this book that I wrote is um, I shared my personal story. I'm so used to talking from a professional wheelhouse and kind of, you know, oh, here I am in the role of teacher or healthcare provider, you know, where I'm telling you all of these things. 
But this story, you know, really came from a broken relationship with my parents. Um, and that has not been restored, you know, even to this day. And something that I, I have prayed for a long time to be restored. And, you know, how do I raise kids without having parents of my own? And how, uh, you know, am I going to be a good parent if I didn't have that parenting relationship or any wisdom or experience to draw on? And when I, when my oldest daughter was 13, this book starts with her throwing a book at my head while we were driving down the road. And I mean, it was a four volume book. So there was some commitment oh, wow. there. She <laughs> chunked it at me. And I just realized you know, that I had to do something different. And, you know, I, I'm listening to one of my favorite songs right now is Cece Winans, uh, The Goodness of God. And when she sings that line, all my life, you have been faithful. I think if you mm. really mean that, that's hard to say. So that doesn't mean just in the good times, but I'm thinking about some of the lowest points, some of the hardest things. And to say that God has been faithful and that he is a God of restoration, that he gives beauty for ashes. He gives joy for mourning. He exchanges, you know, um, your, your garment of despair for a, a spirit of gladness. I mean, those things, God, God is faithful to use those things in my life. And I don't think I would have written this book if I hadn't been in that broken place. So to see God being faithful and knowing he's been faithful all my life. That's been really beautiful. One of the things I appreciate about uh, the way that you write is you're very vulnerable with your own struggles, you know, with your parents. And then also just in some of the ways that your team struggle too. How, how does it feel to have um, kind of ha- have your personal life out there in such a way that uh, it's like, well, you, you're, you're an expert and you're also not perfect, <laughs> which, which as I appreciate as a pastor, that's a, that's a posture I often take like, Hey, this is what the Bible says. This is not how I'm living, but this is what the Bible says. Yes. You know, that, uh, that has been such a, a vulnerable place and, and kind of awkward, you know, feeling, but what I've discovered is that we have uh, actually, when I was talking with my team this morning, we talked about a secret society of broken parents and how mm. that's why the book is called Behind Closed Doors, because we, especially in the church, I think there's such this pressure to present a good front like, oh, I have it all together. Everything's fine. And that's one of the things I say, I even see in practice coming in, you know, the family that you're envying over and social media is actually divorcing. You know, the, the teen that you wish your teen was like is has suicidal thoughts and behaviors, you know, but, but there's such this stigma of talking about it. And I see, you know, we can talk about toddlers having trouble potty training with no problem, you know, there'll be 500 comments on the mom's Facebook page. But if you say my child has mental health struggles, mm, silence. So I felt like it was really important for me to be authentic and to share, you know, my my daughter has anxiety. Um, My brother has addiction and addiction runs in my family. And these are things I've struggled with. And, and I think it's important for me to set that example and to say, Hey, we're all broken, um, but there is hope, and there is healing, and there is restoration, and there is freedom and truth. That is uh, that's really powerful. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I also really love to read dedication pages, 
And you have a very robust dedication page. Okay. And I, I'm going to read the first couple of lines for my audience okay. uh, and, and kind of get your reflection on it. So it says, with great admiration, appreciation, and affection, I dedicate this book to my four children. They embrace our family mantra of to whom much is given, much is required. They are an integral supportive force in this book journey. I'm curious, um, how has writing this book impacted them? I'm sorry, say it one more time, Tony. How has writing this book impacted them? Okay. Oh, this is a great question. So one of the things that uh, I was really struggling with when I decided to step out onto this public platform was how much I was going to involve my kids. Because just because I have a public persona does not obligate them to have a public persona and to be in the public. And I know there's lots of uh, people who share their kids publicly, but for my experience working with kids and working with human trafficking and online exploitation, that was just something that I wasn't willing to do. And at first, you know, I kind of was advised, hey, well, you may not look authentic, but I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to leave that, leave that to the Lord. But the thing that they, so that's why you won't see my kids on social media. I do share things about them, but I share them with their permission. So the stories I share in the book about them, mm. they helped me write, they helped me edit. They wanted me to share, you know, what, what we chose to share. And actually my oldest daughter, I haven't even told anybody this. You're getting all the best information here. My oldest daughter, who's a sophomore at Baylor, is actually going to start writing a blog for me to accompany behind closed doors to kind of say, all right, yeah, that's my mom's perspective. Here's my perspective as a, as a Gen Z. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, but the uh, it is awesome. I'm super excited about it. But the, the main thing, the best compliment that my kids have ever given me is because it's embarrassing, right? Like they have a mom who talks about sex at their school. Like that's, that's embarrassing, but they've never told me they're embarrassed of me. They always say, I'm so grateful that you do this. And they bring their friends to me all the time. I have a counseling chair in my office. I will frequently come home and there's some kids sitting in there that they said, you need to talk to them. So um, they just, they have been such a support, you know, just uh, teaching me so much about what it's like. And that's what I think about parents today. You know, there's this disconnect between what we want the world to look like for our kids and what it actually looks like. And so if we want to influence our kids' worldview, we have to view the world as they see it. And unless we listen and really get on their level and get in their world and see what they're seeing, we're, we're not going to have the influence that we can if we're just listening. So I love to learn from my kids. They are my joy, um, my everything. And actually, when I was president of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, I get to give a, a president's award and usually, you know, give it to somebody who's helped you write a paper or something. I said, oh, no, this is going to my kids. And so I was able to, you know, <laughs> recognize them and they still have it on their nightstand. Like, I mean, what more could I ask for, for as a mom? That's amazing. Um, and your husband's a rocket scientist. So you're uh, a doctor. He's a rocket scientist. Do your kids ever feel like um, they won't measure up? I mean, how, how do you guys reconcile with that? Do you talk about that? Like, that's got to be a real, uh, a, a mentor of mine always says, 
if you're a high functioning adult, one of your jobs is to turn the heat down um, in the room when you walk in with your kids. How do you and your husband navigate that? So that is really hard because, you know, my husband is a rocket scientist. He um, has two graduate degrees and, you know, I am, I have a doctor of nursing practice. Uh, He is amused by the perception that I'm the smart one in this relationship when he is a literal (laughs) rocket scientist. (laughs) And my kids will be quick to say that. They're like, "Uh, yeah, you know, there's a disagreement there. Uh, The rocket scientist is going to win. But uh but it is hard. And I'll tell you, our, our two oldest kids, um, they're very high performing. The first one was valedictorian. The second one um, is on track to do the same. And our younger two are not that interested in that. And so we have really, <laughs> I mean, like, what do they want? People say, what do they want to be? I'm like, they want to be outside. That's what they want to be right now, just outside playing, uh, which is great. And I think that, you know, we have, it, it is hard. I think sometimes there is that pressure. I'm not going to say that there's not. Um, but at the same time, we um, are very intentional about embracing every aspect of our kids' personalities and recognizing their strengths and recognizing that, you know, uh, our, our youngest is the typical youngest. His strength is he makes us laugh. We would be very boring people you know, without him in our life. And, uh, and whatever they want to do, we just tell them whatever you want to do. Just do it unto the Lord. And we're going to support you and we're going to do mm. that. And I hope that they... I hope that they know that, but the oldest two have set the bar high and, and that, that pressure is there. And so just emphasizing and looking for the other strengths in their personalities is something that, that we really take very seriously. Hey guys, just pausing this conversation with Jessica to remind you now is the time to register for the spirit and truth conference happening in Dayton, Ohio, March 9th through 11th. We want to help you get a fresh breath of life with the Holy spirit. So Register today by going to spiritandtruth.life slash conference. Use the code podcast to save $30 off your registration. We would love, love, love to have you here. We're so thankful for each and every one of you. Now let's finish up this conversation with Dr. Peck. One of my favorite tools in the book is an acronym, um, LOVE. I I was hoping that you might take us through that so that the people listening kind of get a feel for um, when they pick up their copy how practical and just, I mean, these are, you're giving some real tools pretty easily that are easy to grasp onto on how they can engage their teen differently. And I think this is important for grandparents who might have teenage grandchildren as it is for parents who have teenagers like myself. So can you kind of take us through that acronym? Uh, Yes, I would love to do that because yes, this is not a book that you're going to read and just say, oh, well, that's nice to know. That's good and informed my view. No, this is an invitation to a Jumanji style parenting adventure. Like it's roll up your sleeves. It's muddy boots. It is, you're going to get your feelings hurt. You know, there's, there's going to be injuries along the way, <laughs> but it is so worth it in the end. So yes, I wanted to give parents really practical hands-on tools. So the love your team model is something that I created modifying a professional tool we use in practice called motivational interviewing. 
And usually, you know, our, our response when we talk to teens, as soon as they tell us something, we don't really listen. Like if they say, you know, something that we think is unwise or they're thinking about doing or we find out that they're doing something, we immediately launch into lecture mode. And we're like, how could you do that? What are you thinking about? Oh, that is not a good idea, you know. Um, but what I've found is that using this is how I talk to teens. Uh, people call me the teen whisperer here in the community mm-hmm. because they're like, how do you know all these things? I'm like, I just use this simple tool. So here you go. I'll walk you through it. So L is listen with your face. We do not listen with our face. I mean, you think, uh, parents think, how many times have you been talking to your spouse and they're not paying attention and you say, you're not listening. And the first thing that they say back to you is always, I am listening. Yes, I am. And then they'll repeat back everything you say. We don't feel heard. So we are often guilty of fubbing Mm. our teens, phone snubbing our teens, there's actually a lot of research about this. It decreases um, the chemicals that we have in our brain that make us feel like we bond. So they feel disconnected. They feel disrespected. They have a lower opinion of us. So you just need to put down your phone. Stop what you're doing. Pull over the car, you know, and look at them and listen with their face. Then the, when they say something, don't, don't give statements back. Offer open-ended questions first. Let the first word out of your mouth be a question. How is that making you feel? Um, tell me more about how that's impacting you. And I give in the book specific, you know, hints for that. You you can write them on your hand if you want to, you know, while you're cheating and, and learning. Um, and then V is validate the emotion. So we can validate the emotion without validating the action. So for example, your teen doesn't study. They go to school. They get a bad grade. You're not shocked at all. They come home. You could say, I told you, I told what do you, I told you you should have studied. Or you can say, I see this is really upsetting to you. What can I do to support you in in changing your decision making? It's a totally different mindset. And then E is explore next steps together. So instead of telling them you're going to do this and you're going to do that, say, okay, what do you think you need to do to change the situation? Making them feel empowered and like they're having some decision making. I'm telling you, if you practice this model, I promise you, if you intentionally do it a year from now, you will be in a completely different place with your team than you are right now. Yeah. It, as I read it, it seemed very practical and very applicable and, you know, like, Hey, I, I could do this. Here's the million dollar question for me. I'm a very passionate guy. I can get very fired up about things, even when I don't mean to, how do I t- detach and, and I'm speaking for other emotional people out here. How do I detach my emotions from my child's actions? Oh, great question. I should also mention at this point that my rocket scientist husband is Italian. So <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I emotions, you know, um, definitely have learned that from yeah. his family. But I think that, you know, what you need to do is picture yourself in that place before it happens. That's usually what happens is we're blindsided. We don't see something coming and we are angry. And usually it's not, we're not angry at our team. We're angry that something has threatened what we see as their construct of security, threatened their future, threatened you know some, some way forward in their path. And so our immediate response is, is just anger. How could you do that? You know, and it's so hard to do. But if you just practice this simple response in any situation, if you say, this news is upsetting, let's take a minute 
to let our emotions settle down before we talk about this. I want to walk away. But before we do that, I want you to know that no matter what, I love you and we'll find a way to talk through this. And if you need to do that, then just do that. Because the words that we say in those moments, they permanently shape our children's view of themselves. Because people think kids don't care what you have to say. That's just not true. They really care what you have to say. Mm. They listen intently, especially to what you say about them specifically. And more importantly, they believe everything you say about them. So when we see our kid with a particular behavioral struggle, like say they're struggling with being on time or uh, they're struggling with lying or they're struggling with, um, you know, risk taking behaviors, just anything. We don't want to say, oh, you're such a liar. Oh, you're so you're so lazy. I can generalize it to their character. We have to believe in their future and say, you're a great kid who's struggling with being on time right now. You're a great kid who's Mm. just making some poor choices. So how can we get you back on track? I I cannot uh, underemphasize. I mean, I can't overemphasize how important that is. I mean, it, it really does. Because when I see kids in practice, when I talk to teens, they tell me everything their parent thinks about them. Oh, my dad thinks that I'm no good. My dad thinks, now, if I go talk to the dad, he's not going to say that. He says, no, I love my kid. Sure. There's that disconnect in communication, and that's what I'm trying to bridge. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I see is that this is a lot more about the parent than it is about the teen. Parenting teens is is really about our own stuff. Um, I, I think that they're probably a lot of parents who are listening who are going, man, I I wish I had that when I grew up. Um, Now I need to give it to my kids. How do we break? And and I don't, I'm going to use a church term for it because I don't have great language, but how how do we break the generational sin in in family of of where, where, you know, I mean, you mentioned addiction, but there's lots of things that over the years have separated parents from kids how do we break the cycle? Well, you know, I'll use a healthcare term. We call it generational trauma. I mean, it is a real mm. thing. And I know I struggled with that. I thought, you know, when my daughter threw that book at my head, I thought, here we go. I'm looking at a long line of broken mother-daughter relationships. And I'm just going to be another wow. statistic in there. And I really had to just embrace God's truth on that and see that, it is possible to break that cycle. Now you've got to do the work and that is really hard. And for me, I'll be really transparent. That involved counseling. I needed a counselor to help me work through all of that. And, uh, and that was really helpful. But what parents need to know is that when we don't break that generational trauma or generational sin, it makes us in a constant state of stress. And that stress releases chemicals in our body that literally damage our organs, damage our blood vessels. Um, You think about if you're in the woods with a bear and you see a bear and you're afraid, that's a good response if you're in the woods and there's a bear. But with generational trauma, we bring that bear home with us and you're in that constant fight or flight state. And it changes the way our DNA is read and transcribed. And so that's how we pass on generational trauma. So that's one of the things that I try to do in Behind Closed Doors is is really challenge parents to look at their own hearts and say, what do you need to deal with in your past? You need to deal with your hurt and find healing so that doesn't become your teen's hurt. 
Now, I'll confess, you know, there are some things that I still struggle with um, for, as a result of the you know trauma that I've experienced. And I'll tell my kids, hey, I'm so sorry that, you know, you have to deal with this, but it's better. It's better every time. And I hope your children are even better. And just even being able to name and claim those feelings and talk mm-hmm. about it. I just posted a quote from Mr. Rogers yesterday about anything that's mentionable is manageable and anything that's manageable yeah. we can we can discuss. And if we talk about our feelings, they're a little less scary. We're a little less alone. And that is just that is really important. And I already see that, you know, paying dividends. And that's really exciting to me. Yeah, the, the, the format for the book is kind of, it's got three different doors is the way you talk about it, clinic, home, and heart. And each door kind of uh, is another part, of, another way to look at, at the same topic. And then throughout the course of the book that you go through some, I mean, you basically hit every hard hitting topic that it happens in the world today, which kudos to you. That's a lot of bravery. <laughs> um, I'm curious there's probably a parent listening who feels disconnected and they don't even know which hard hitting topic they're in right now. What's the first step for a parent who wants to re-engage their teen and try to heal the, the wound that's maybe festered up between the two of them? You know, that is a really good question. So the first step, is for the parent to acknowledge that it's time to get help. That's really it. How Mm. many times do we just sit in misery? You know, we really do that. If you um, had a sore throat and a fever, you would pick up the phone and call your primary health care provider and say, I need to get in and probably today, you know, but if you are having conflict, if you are having um, dysfunctional relationship patterns, we're always, well, let's just wait it out. Let me Google search a little bit and see what I can find. You know, it's going to help me. Let me listen to a podcast, you know, like this one. But I think coming to that moment where you say, you know what? This is it. This is the moment. This cannot continue. We've got to do something different. And then it takes a village around you. You can't do it alone. I I read Mm. Gallup said 81% of Americans will rely on Google to information search, but only 16% will share with a trusted friend about a challenge they're having. Something is wrong. If we we don't have enough confidence to talk to a trusted friend about a struggle we're having, but we're confident enough in our Google search to handle it. And that's how these patterns just continue. So reach out to somebody you trust. That might be a pastor. That might be a healthcare provider, might be a counselor, might be just somebody, a a mentor that you have and just say, Hey, guess what's going on behind closed doors? Like, this is what I'm dealing with. And then making those steps forward to actually do something about it. And it's, there's no magic cure, right? There's no easy fix. This is a messy looping back and forth hills and valleys, mountains and, and uh, plateaus but uh, those are the important things to do. So I'm going to ask you uh, to do something that's very unfair. And I'm going to ask you to speak to church leaders, because I really believe that um, one of the things that the church has really dropped the ball on is this idea of engaging teens with something more than just a fun youth group. Although fun youth group is super important. But if, if we look at, um, mass violence in America, 
it's it's a really interesting um, character of a of a seventeen year old white male from a rural or urban or rural or suburban community. And, and what's happened is, is we haven't done a great job of engaging the teenagers who are on the margins. So if you were going to draw up a prescription plan for the local church, what would you tell them to do? That is, oh, I wish that this could be like reality. I'm, I'm going to send it out to every church. <laughs> the first thing that I would do is tell church leaders to help parents and youth leaders engage in meaningful conversation with teens. The church, frankly, does a terrible job of equipping teens to meet the challenges of today. And we don't talk about those things. The messages that we give are things like, don't have sex. It's bad. Don't do drugs. Modest is hottest. Save yourself for marriage, you know. And and then when they do find themselves in these positions, they have no trusted adult that they can go to. They have terrible shame. And so they try to figure it out on their own. And that is just leads to a spiral of uh, destructive behavior. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen it in my practice. I have a, a student who engages in sexting, doesn't know how to get out of that, starts feeling depressed and anxious, starts self-harming, starts using substances to, to numb that pain, and the parents have no idea what's going on. And that's not an indictment on parents at all. It's mm. just a reality check. It's a gut check that we cannot adopt the not my kid mantra. And when we you know, have uh, some kids are just better at pretending than other kids, but we have to have right. a, a, an environment in church youth groups. I agree. Like, have fun and bring them in. But we've got to have meaningful uh, conversation. The number one predictor of childhood resilience to trauma, which what you're talking about, uh, all of these um, you know, kids on the fringe and on the margin who commit acts of violence, they almost always have childhood trauma and they have abuse that is un, uh, unaddressed. And so we have to have an environment where they can come in and, and be honest about that. And the number one predictive factor of their recovery is con- meaningful connection to an adult in their life. So we got to get them connected to somebody, mm. whether that's a youth pastor, whether that is a Sunday school teacher, whether that is their parent, uh, or whether that's you know a mentor or a coach or a teacher or somebody, they need somebody to connect with. Because every single one of those kids, they did not have any meaningful connection to an adult who was speaking truth and grace in their life. Yeah, we should send that out to every pastor. That's so good. <laughs> Well, they think uh, okay. I don't want to give teens idea. I don't want to give them ideas. Okay, let me just tell you this. I'm going to tell you this straight up as a pediatric yeah. nurse practitioner. Kids already have ideas, and they're all bad. Like they're terrible ideas. <laughs> <laughs> they they have ideas, and they're not wise, and they're not well thought out. And so, yes, please let's give them ideas. I want to give my teens ideas. I want to give them good ideas. So um, I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I know that my listeners are going to want to connect with you all over the internet. Where is the best thing to learn all things Jessica Peck and where we can pick up the next book that I'm sure is already coming out, Already, you're already working on, but uh, where can we hear about what God is doing in and through your ministry? 
You can, uh, I would love for your listeners to connect to my podcast. That is brand new. Just started recently, the Dr. Nurse Mama podcast. I previously hosted a podcast that was really for nurses, but this one's for parents. We walk through each chapter of the book and I co-host it with a pastor, actually, a local pastor here, where we talk about the intersection of health and faith and I ask the pastor all the tough questions, you know, just like you're asking me all the tough questions today. <laughs> but uh, we really talk about those things like stigma of mental health in the church and how you know, the church over-spiritualizes mental health and all, all of those things. Like you said, I mean, we, we go there. And uh, so I'd love to see them there. You can find me on my website at drnursemama.com, drnursemama.com. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. I actually have a book club going on right now on social media where uh, I post information. We're taking one month to go through each chapter. We're just starting mental health. I'm inviting a community of parents that jump in and just, you know, engage with my content, find other parents who are there. And uh, we're just, we're going and we're going to share our experiences about trying these conversation settings and conversation keys. I'll share some of my successes and failures. Uh, So those are the places that you can find me. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Last question. I love to ask people. It's an advice question. Except um, I get to name the season of life that you're in when you go back to give yourself one piece of advice. Ooh. And so, yeah, it, it's a, this is a hard one. So I, I'd like to take you back um, to the very uh, first day after you came home with your now 19-year-old child. Mm-hmm. If you could pull up a chair and sit knee to knee with that new, certainly tired, excited mom, the version of yourself that you are right then, Mm. what's the one piece of advice you're going to give her? Wow. Honestly, mm, that's a little emotional. So I'll tell you, (laughs) I'll tell you who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to that mom, she's in her mid twenties. She is terribly insecure, terribly afraid that she is going to mess up this child for life, Uh, terribly secretive that people are going to find out that this baby has colic and doesn't eat well and is really unhappy and doesn't seem to like her mother at all already, even (laughs) when she's a newborn. Mm. Oh. And feeling so alone and so afraid, but, you know, pressure to keep up this professional persona because this is what you do for a living. And how are you going to do this? I would tell her that (laughs) I would tell her that the Lord is a sun and a shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing Mm. does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He is going to light your path. He is going to protect you. He is going to walk you through with glory. I was reading about in the Greek is comes from the word doxa, which means the physical weight of God's presence, that he is going to be with you and that this is, and that God is a God of redemption and he is going to use this story for his good and for his glory. And your daughter is going to be <laughs> the greatest blessing you could have ever ever wanted to give and everything you're dreaming about having, you will have. Tony, you got me. (laughs) Amen. 
Amen. And what a beautiful place to end our time together. Jessica, thank you for being so generous and vulnerable and honest and wise and for dealing with all the tough questions I threw your way. I can't wait to see what God does next. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all that you do to equip your listeners with hope and life and just community. I really value that and appreciate that very much. Man, I love this conversation with Jessica. She's got such a heart for the Lord and a heart for parents, which I know if you're anything like me, you need. So uh, do me a favor, go follow her on social media. If you've got a teenager, go ahead and pick up the latest resource behind closed doors and uh, let her know that you heard her here on the podcast. And don't forget the second episode this week is a conversation with Jessica and Shelby Peck, her daughter from Baylor. Such a good combo. Guys, I'm thankful for each and every one of you. Uh, Have a great, great week. I'll talk to you guys later. And remember, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.